And now, a Breakthrough Basketball original podcast, The Jim Huber Show. After basketball, his dream is to become a rodeo clown. Jim Huber. Hey, everybody. Oh, it is hard work being this good. I was like, ow. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a, a big choo-choo train. We join the Jim Huber Show, already in progress. I did that with not having any type of medication. <laughs> So today, uh, Jimmy, on the show, uh, Don Kelbick from Breakthrough Basketball, NBA trainer. Uh, this guy is the, I was telling you before we got together today that I've never met anyone more ate up. I thought you were the most ate up person I've ever seen with basketball. Uh, Don is even more ate up than me. I need to get Don around my wife because my wife thinks what you just said. But now she met Don, she wouldn't think maybe I'm that bad. You wouldn't seem as bad. You know, I've watched his videos. Uh, read his information. He's definitely a very knowledgeable um, person in regards to basketball and life that can help coaches, players, uh, parents kind of navigate through. He changed my son's game profoundly. I mean profoundly. When he went to that camp up in Iowa, the attack encounter, he came back a different kid on the floor. His confidence, his mentality, uh, the mental game. The so you indebted to Don? You yeah. Feel like? Now let me ask you, if Don yeah. walked in, he just got done with camp, I all day hug. camp. No, yeah. and he said, hey, Troy, I need you to rub my feet. Would mm. you rub my feet, massage my calves because it hurt me? <laughs> no. You're indebted to him, and he's helped your son. Yeah, kind of maybe. Would you do it? Maybe. I yeah, might. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I definitely owe the guy. So, all right, let's see if we can get Don on here. Well, that's what we're excited about. Talk, we got the schedule for like four hours, I heard. Four, hour, four hours of basketball talk with Don. I was excited. I couldn't sleep last night. <laughs> From my bottom of my heart, thank you. You made my son a better basketball player. I think he made himself a better basketball player. Talk about what you teach in the camps mentally that makes a difference. I really, 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 really hammer over and over and over and over again. A, a particular mentality, which is which is contrary to what I was taught as a player, what I started out teaching as a coach, and what I see being taught now. Because I I just think the mental aspect of the game is is so very important that if you don't put it in its place, you can you can be a great great shooter. If I remember the first time I met Nick, I think he was thirteen, right? Yeah. And he was, he was skilled. Even back then, he was a very good shooter. But he was afraid of certain things. He was afraid to get yelled at by his coach. He was afraid to miss shots. He was afraid to make mistakes. And if you're afraid of anything in this life, you'll never get to where you want to go. So some of the things, some of the things that I teach um, is you can't, fear mistakes. You can't fear misses. The only way not to miss is not to shoot. And if you don't want to make any mistakes, don't play. Mistakes tells you what it is you want to learn, what you need to learn, where you need to get better. Right? Nobody's going to be perfect. And I learned from my own experience as a player because, because I, I, I used to be a psycho. Because I tried to be perfect. I wanted to be perfect. Not only was I always disappointed, but I would get frustrated really easily. And until I overcame that, I never really reached any level of potential as a player. 
once I started to take the attitude of, of I really don't care, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try and be the best player I can be, and I'm going to be and I'm going to be able to live with what the results of that are, that I truly started to improve. So that's, that's what I try and impart when I, inside of when I teach my skills. So while people come to me to have their skills improved, I would venture to say that probably 25% is the skill, and the other 75% of improvement is based in mentality. You know, I know, like you talk about, a kid leaves, goes and plays for a coach. Coach get frustrated, you know, they get frustrated, mistakes happen, yelling at a kid, getting upset. So what do you tell that kid? Is there exercises or how do they continue to condition themselves to be able to flush mistakes out, to not be afraid to make mistakes, to, like you said, to, to be able to be confident and not afraid to fail? I think, I think the first thing is we have to understand coaching. I think that what coaches do best is they teach fear of failure. You walk into any practice and, and any time anybody makes a, makes a mistake, coach flies off the handle. I mean, this is, this is a real big picture thing, and it, and it gets back to the fundamentals of what coaching really is. I like to say that, I like to say that, that coaching is incestuous. Okay? Coaches coach the way they were coached, without being introspective at all, and without really examining if what they do is really productive. So the result of that is the same, for lack of a better word, and I apologize if this sounds arrogant or didactic, if you were coached that way, you don't know any other way. And if you didn't play, or especially if you're a youth coach or a younger coach, unless you have a really strong role model, you don't get to look at the things you really need to look at. So you have people that want to get into coaching, and who are their coaching, who are their coaching idols? Who do they look for, look to, to emulate and to try and get better in coaching? Well, they have the people that they see on TV. When is a coach usually on TV? When he's yelling and screaming at somebody, because otherwise it's not an interesting picture, and they won't put it on TV. Right there, there's peaceful Jim Huber. You never see that shot. You <laughs> <laughs> see screaming Jim Huber. Right. So, what would you say though, Don? Okay, now a young coach is coming up, and they've been coached a certain way. So, for them to maybe change that approach and maybe more an effective approach, what would be strategies you'd suggest them to take, and maybe resources they should look into? to help them become better? I, I, I really believe, first, in, in being introspective and empowering your players. There was a time, I mean, I grew up in the time when, when, when a coach yelled jump, you were supposed to say how high. I don't believe that that's the case anymore, and I don't think it's because of a change in society, and I don't think it's because of a change in people, or change in games. It's, it deals more with understanding how people learn, because as a coach, effectively is what you are, is you're a teacher. And no matter what happens, you have to teach. And you take, you take your own kids. I'm not talking about your players. I'm talking about your children. Okay? You need to correct their behavior. And you start yelling at him to come to see you. Come upstairs. Come upstairs. I need to talk to you right now. How quickly does he run up the stairs? 
as opposed to when you come home and you have some ice cream that's melting and you say, hey, come up and help me fill this and finish this ice cream. And I, I draw, I draw a, lot of, a lot of parallels and analogies. And something else I like to say, I think Vince Lombardi used to say, you treat all players the same. You treat them like dogs. Okay? And I believe, <laughs> I believe in that, except I don't believe in it the same way that Vince Lombardi did. And this is, this is where I'm coming from. I, I bought a dog, and the dog was a runner. Every time I would let him go, he would just take off. So I had to bring him to a professional trainer. And the first thing he had me do was, he says, let me see how you handle, my, handle your dog. So he put him on one side of the room. He had me call him. And I called him, and he didn't come. I called him again, he didn't come. I called him again, he didn't come. And I started to get upset. So he stopped me. And he said, if you were the dog and you were yelling and you were getting yelled at, how quickly would you come to you? I said, well, I would stay away from you. <laughs> he said, well, that's what your dog is doing. And I think that's what coaches do when they yell and scream. You want, when you say something, you want your players not to hear you. You want them to listen to you. And two things happen when you're yelling and screaming at somebody, first it becomes commonplace. And people become backwards. And whatever you get, whatever you give out, eventually you're going to get it back. So eventually kids get tired, players get tired of getting yelled at and screamed at, and they turn you off. And now you have no aspect for teaching anymore because you no longer have a woman student. The second thing that happens is if you want to emphasize a point, you need to change your behavior. I learned that when I was teaching special education. I was teaching in a class of ungraded kids who had emotional problems. And I was amazed that the supervising teacher, when she wanted to quiet the room down, when people were yelling and screaming and throwing stuff, she would whisper. And I said, that's amazing. I've never seen that before. And she said to me, these kids get yelled at all the time. How are they going to know when it's time to listen and what's important unless you present it to them differently? When I'm in practice, I very, very rarely raise my voice. And when I do, I want to make sure they know it's because it's important. During the course of a game, I very rarely stand up. But when I stand up, all eyes turn because I do it so infrequently. Players understand that this is important. But I think it's a really big picture thing. I don't want to lose sight of what the question you asked me was, how do you get kids over that fear of failure? I think it's a big picture item, and it needs to be consistent. I think that, I think that if, if it's somebody on your team, you need to spend a lot of time with him off the court. You need to spend a lot of time talking to him instead of correcting him. Players don't want to. Players don't want to underperform. They don't want to make mistakes. They don't want to do things poorly. Right. So, unfortunately, in coaching, we often come to the point where when somebody is continuously making a mistake and you continue to correct them, we interpret that as disobedience. When, and I did as well, and I don't believe that that's the case. We all live our lives by perception. 
And it's very, very difficult to give our perceptions to somebody else and to have somebody else assume our values. If, if a player is continually missing the same shot, he has to learn that you either, I'm not going to tell you not to shoot it, but you need to become a better shooter. And if you're going to shoot it, you need to understand that you may miss. And if missing that shot is going to bother you, then you can't take it. If it doesn't bother you, then you're going to take it enough that eventually you get good at it. And I think that you really have to, over the long term, generate a, uh, generate a feeling within players that mistakes and errors are opportunities to learn. Well, I hear, I hear you say too, Don. I mean, it's like no one, they talk about the players, if they know that you love them, care for them, spending time with them, you know, getting to know them, then they're going to be, you know, feeling more comfortable around you. They're going to want to sit there and play hard for you. But it sounds like, you know, what you mentioned too is coaches, we get so caught up in, you know, the emotions of the moment, pressures from maybe it's fans, parents, um, administration, whatever that would take place. So what would you suggest to a coach, things that they can do to try to keep them maybe in that, you know, kind of a peaceful type mindset when they're coaching, when they, you know, see pressure during a game that's starting to take place and they're not reacting in a negative way? Well, one of, one of my coaching mentors was a guy by the name of John Wood. I think I was 21 years old, and he was the first speaker at the first coaching clinic I ever went to. And he was scheduled for three hours on Friday night and three hours on Saturday morning, and I was really looking forward to that. Until he spent the three hours on Friday night talking about the first thing that he teaches his players is how to put on his socks. Mm-hmm. And it took him an hour and a half to explain that. And I thought that that was crazy. And then, you know, because one of the things about coaches is that when you're young, you know all the answers. Yeah. And as you get older, you realize you do know all the answers. They just, the questions just don't matter what you think they are. <laughs> um, how did he take an hour and a half to explain socks, Don? That's, how did he do that? Because his feeling was this, is that basketball is a game that is played on your feet. And if your feet are not comfortable... How are you going to play well? How do you put on your socks? <laughs> <laughs> I live in Florida. I don't wear socks anymore. That's right. He's in, he's in Crocs. Uh, he doesn't wear socks. He wears Crocs. Yeah. Coach Wooden always felt that a coach's job is done in practice. Once the game, once the game starts, that's the player's domain. And it's akin to, again, raising your kids. Once, once your kids walk out of the front door, you have no control over what they're going to do. Anything that you do is going to be reactionary. So you raise your kids and hope that when they walk out of the front door, that they take your values with them. In, in trying to help coaches create a mindset that they can continue to work and they're not abusive and, 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 and they continue to work with their players and don't get caught up in a moment of the game, is, is you have to understand that once the game starts, your job is effectively done. If you're prepared for practice and you feel that you do a good job in practice, 
you accept what your practice gives you during the course of a game. I have a belief that coaches do more harm than good during games. You know, big fight town notwithstanding, where he'll come down and somebody will call a play and it'll work and he'll say, oh, great call by coach so-and-so to, to, get, to get that basket. Okay? Well, he didn't bring up that the coach made the same call the previous six times down the floor <laughs> and they were turnovers. That doesn't work into walk into your thinking. So I think understanding your job is done in practice leads to you being in peace during being at peace during a game. One of the things that really that I really don't understand is I watch coaches on the sideline try and coach skills in the middle of a game. Do you want to have somebody chasing you who is quicker, bigger, more athletic than you? And you raise up for a shot, the coach on the sideline is saying, keep your elbow in. While somebody's trying to tattoo the ball back onto your forehead. That, that doesn't work. Hey, Don, what, what's your thoughts? And say a youth coach and has two practices a week, has an hour, maybe hour and 30 minutes. So two hours, three hours to spend with the kids. They're working on the fundamentals, but also conceptually, if they go play in tournaments, you know, they're working on maybe teaching kids man-to-man defense and um, some conceptual offense how to play. If they get into a you know game, if to me it can like coach standing up trying to you know getting kids sprinting back in transition defense. Hey, talking to them, we see ball, we see man. Hey, the ball's here. You two pass away. Trying to even make maybe that game kind of like an extension of practice because you don't get much time with them to try to help them to be, you know, in position to succeed. Is that something that you would feel like you would be okay with seeing that to try to help those kids? Well, let me, let me, let me ask you this question. Okay. Because, because you coach a lot of games, you coach a lot of kids. Okay. During the course of a game, what do you want your players paying attention to? Do you want them paying attention to you? Or do you want them paying attention to the game? I guess for yeah. me, it's like I feel like you don't have a right. lot of reps and time in, in practice with these kids. Right. So when you get in games, if kid doesn't, you know, he's off hogging his guy, he's on the weak side, and he's hogging his guy, and he's two pass away, and he's just standing there, kids don't move and the ball moves. So it's no, like either think- you got to try to instruct to help them to understand the conditioning with these reps, or, you know, what do you do? You just let them just continue to do it? I think you can never forget the fact that you are a teacher. Okay. How easy it is, how easy is it for it to teach during in chaos? It's, it's not easy. So I'm not saying you don't make those corrections during the game. But I'm saying when Billy is running back on defense, okay, and the ball is coming at him, that's not the time to say, put your lead foot up. Okay? When there is a lull in the play, when there's a dead ball, when he's over by the bench, when he's, when he's, when he's sitting, when he's not in the game. I think more things are get get more things done by pulling the kid over to you and just say, last time down, the ball was on the right side. You were hugging your guy out by the left sideline. The ball's on the right side. You need to get back. You need to protect the basket. You're a weak side help. Because what you say isn't as important as what they hear. Mm-hmm. And if they're not in a, if they're not in a 
in a position to listen. What you do, the situation that you create normally will be 180 degrees of what you want. But again, to go back to the other thought, if you're up all the time, yelling and screaming all the time while play is going on, players start listening to you instead of watching what's going on. When a kid plays, you want him to be as relaxed and as open to everything that he can take in during the course of a game as he can be. As you start, and, it's, and this is not true with all players, but because there are players that play better when you're on them all the time. But you're running up and down the floor, and he just hears you yelling at him all the time. Eventually what's going to happen is his stress level is going to go up, and he's going to try and play to please you instead of play to be good. And now his attention is diverted. And oftentimes, I learned this really early in my career, that, that players started to make mistakes because, because they were listening to me instead of watching what was going on in the game. I try and encourage. The number one thing in coaching to me is communication. Okay? I try and encourage players to talk to me at all levels. And I had, I had a player come to me and say, you know, I understand what you're saying during the course of the game, but it's really hard for me to listen to you and play the game all at the same time. So I said, okay, I will talk to you during the game. And he looked at me like I, like I, was, like I was crazy. I said, no, no, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop coaching you. But while again, I'm going to find different times during the course of the game to get across what it is I need to get across. Because things do have to be, do have to be corrected. And more importantly, that, players have to be encouraged to do what they do in practice. That and goes back are, to Don, though. Also, talking to your players, getting to know them, asking them questions yes. like, "Hey, is this effective? Is it not with you?" Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that I do with players, and I'm in kind of a strange situation now, because I, I, I haven't coached on the sideline in ten years, and I'm coaching a team this year because it was a local school. Who's, who I'm very friendly with the athletic director that had some real, real problems and they, they asked me to step in that I constantly am asking them, what is it that you want to do? And by empowering them and it gets them to open up communications and then my selling and my coaching is Based on my experience, there are certain things that I believe that you're going to be good at and certain things that you're not going to be as good at. You tell me what you want to do, and I'll find a way to get you to do that to the best of your ability. And once players, once players know that, you're, that you have their interest at heart, they listen to what you said. Well, it's almost and, getting them to take ownership, right? And then they, get the, and they start buying in, right? Because they're able yes. to, to take the ownership yes. of it as well. And Mike Antonio, I was in a conversation with Mike Antonio that, that he uses a real, when it comes to coaching, he, he's a really fascinating person. And he uses a phrase that I'm sure isn't used a lot in coaching. Now, it's true the level that he coaches at and the players that he plays, the players that he deals with are different than what you and I deal with. But his thing is to create partnerships with players. Because somebody asked him in the discussion, somebody, somebody asked him, what's it like to yell at Steve Nash? And he looks up and he says, why would I ever want to yell at Steve Nash? Well, how do you correct him? Well, we just talk because we've created a partnership. He knows that what I ask him to do is for his benefit 
And for my purpose, I know that the decisions that he makes, he believes is going to help our team. Does it always? No. But when you know what the intent is, it's a lot easier to discuss that. A lot of that comes from the court. For example, the only thing we do is we play man-to-man defense. And I'm going to throw this out. I think if you're a youth coach or if you're a young coach, you have people that, that are not very experienced in basketball. If you're playing zone defense, you're doing them a disservice. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's stamp that down. <laughs> Holy cow. Hey, I love to hear Don, that. Let me tell you what Jim did. Let me tell you what Jimmy did this week, okay? So his team is playing a team, and they go into a zone, and – you were what? You were well. No, they go in the zone. We're up by seven in the second half. It's around o'clock. It's like sixteen minutes ago. I told him pull the ball out. We'll play catch. I'll play catch for sixteen minutes. I don't care. <laughs> You're gonna come out. He yeah. would have held the ball fired. sixteen minutes on the guy. I would have. Without even. So anyway, but go ahead, Don. Go into your deal because I want to hear this. I love it. I mean, it's just, there's a saying in coaching: if you can't play man, you can't play zone. I agree. And 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 at younger levels, you think you're helping kids by playing a zone, and your success. It's not because of your defense. It's because of, it's because of a low skill level. Yes. Of the Can't shoot it. So, so how is that? How is that going? How is that going to help you? Well, I get a medal so, and I'm the winning coach yeah, at the get tournament. Get a trophy. Because, get home. Get yeah, a shelter. I got first place medal here, Don. The, the only thing we play is man to man defense. That's all we play. And ball screens have become an integral part of 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 offense at mm-hmm. every level. Okay, and I really think at higher levels, if, if you don't go over the top of the screen. You're going to get buried because people are just going to shoot it. So I'm trying to teach them to go over the top of the screen, which they did very, very well. And, and we're making evaluations of how things are going. I sit down and I talk to two of my players and they said, you know what? We'll get over the top of the screen. But when Billy and I are, are, guarding, are, are guarding the ball screen and we're pretty much, why don't we switch? Now, when I was at high school, the switch was a sign of weakness. Okay? It, it no longer is. Now it's good defense. So it came from the court. Why don't we switch on ball screens? And now what we do is we've even gone beyond that, that any time two white players cross, we'll switch that. And now defensively, we're just crushing people. Because and, and we talked before about how do you get into big pressure and that kind of stuff. Okay. The first thought that I had with this team, the first thing that I said to them, was you are going to separate yourself from other teams by the way you defend. So defense is a constant message in, in everything that we do. I know that when the suggestion came from the court, why don't we switch on this, it didn't come from laziness. It came from a desire to play better defense. Now, is that also so, down the mentality? It's kind of like back when Rick Majera was kind of like switching body on body, no uncontested shots, be able to guard and not let openings on the roll or coming off having a wide open shot? You can't guard everything. So what we try and do is we try to pick for you what you are going to do. I'm not going to guard somebody on the perimeter if they can't make the shots. I want that player to shoot the ball. So we're going to pick for you what offense you get to run. You don't get to pick for us. When we defend people, I don't care what you're going to do. I'm going to pick who on your team I want to shoot the ball. 
I'm going to pick where I want him to shoot it from. And then we're going to play the results. So it's not, I'm not giving up any open shots. I'll give up a lot of open shots. Well, going back and to that, though, Don, a question for you is, I know you said before you're fighting over the top all ball screens. If, if it's out of a scoring area and the kid can't shoot, would you go under that screen? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing too, do you ever do you ever ice the screen? Do you ever force it? You know, if they're you know a continuity ball screen, they always want to try to get to the middle, middle. And I've seen individuals that run like a handoff into a ball screen, and they got a right. guy right to the corner. I'm like, if you would just ice that screen down, they have no spacing. Where are they going to go to? Um, there's probably no counter off of it, and they want to get to the middle. So I don't know. To me, like I said, dictating like, hey, you want this? You're not going to get it. So what are you going to yep. do now? That actually. Was in, was in the defensive plan. I started out by teaching, by teaching uh, hedging get over the top. And then we wanted to, against a particular team, we wanted, to, we wanted to ice the screen. For those of you who don't know what icing the screen is, we try, we try and get on top of the screen and drive it backwards. Um, you might tell them what you do with the hedge, like the guy guarding the screen, or you, what do you do with him? You have him like low, kind of by yeah. the basket, right? Yep. Um, Icing, I think, is a, is a special situation for people who can do special things. Maybe not something that, that's, that you're going to give a steady diet of. So it was out of that that the conversation about switching came up. So now when people ball screen and screen, we switch, we switch all of those things that has the same effect of an ice, but it leaves all of our bases covered. It causes less of a rotation in the back and allows, allows for better weak side help. It allows for better rebounding position because not as many players have to rotate. Now, I know you have a matchup zone defensive DVD, so somebody's going to be asking, like, well, wait a minute. He's not talking about that. When do you incorporate, say, a matchup you know, zone defense? Do you do any of that? And what would you recommend coaches to use something like that? Well, again, I'm going to go back to I believe that if you can't play man, you can't play zone. Because at some point, no matter what defense you play, somebody has to guard the ball, somebody has to guard the post, somebody has to guard the next pass, somebody has to, has to be in weak side help. And those are all man-to-man principles. So I don't move to the matchup. And I play the matchup my entire career. I learned, I learned a matchup zone in 1978. I learned it in 1978, and I've used it my entire career. But I do know that I cannot play the matchup unless my players are well-schooled in man-to-man principles. So, again, I teach, if if you saw the matchup zone DVD, I teach defense differently also. The man-to-man principles, I teach without a ball. Yeah, those are are good. I like those drills, especially when you get like, you get seven, eight guys doing the drills at the same time where they're getting a lot of reps and you have kids standing yep. around. I like that. Yes, and, it, there, are, and there, are, there are a lot more reasons for that. Then when we start to play live, it started out of a, out of a conversation with uh, a guy by the name of Bob Duquette. Bob Duquette was Pete Carrill's assistant at, at Princeton That's for a long time, and he went on to coach at St. Peter's and then at Marquette. And he was a great defensive coach. And he used to run a drill where he was playing five. It was a rotation drill where he was playing five on five. 
and on command, one player on defense would sprint to midcourt and then rejoin the play. While he was out of the play, it would force the other four defenders to, to adjust and to rotate and to hold the ball up until that fifth player came back into the, into the, into the defense. Well, I started to run that and I found that, I found that players, instead of trying to become better defensively, they tried to become better at the drill. So they wouldn't play really hard defense because they knew a command for somebody to sprint out was coming and they would sit and they would wait for that. Out of that grew disadvantage drills. Okay? We play defensively and it's, and it's to teach rotation. We play a lot of four offense, three defense, five offense, four defense. We play a lot of it. And it's all stressed with defensive principles. You have to guard somebody. If you don't guard somebody, now they got two guys open. What's going to happen with the one guy who's not being guarded? Well, that's got to be a help situation. You've got to be prepared. And if this guy goes to play here, then everybody else has to rotate. And then generated out of that was a simple, was a really simple step to go from that to the matchup zone. But it still all starts with being confident and understanding what man-to-man defense is all about, what all defense is all about. I listen to coaches constantly talk about dictating pace, and we want to do this, and we want to do this, and we want to do this. When it's all said and done, the purpose of defense is to stop them from scoring. And that comes first, and that comes last. Okay? So we teach man-to-man defense. We teach the purpose for defense constantly because when somebody has a question, well, what do I do if this happens, this happens, this happens? What's the object of defense? Object is don't let them score. Okay, so let's take this situation. Where can you go where you're going to be most effective stopping somebody from scoring? I can go here and I can go like this. I said, okay, let's give it a shot. See what happens. And if they're not afraid to make mistakes and he goes and does that and has some success, now all of a sudden you have a player that's progressed. Don, you got 13 attacking counter camps coming up. You can find all of them listed at donkelbickbasketball.com, also at breakthroughbasketball.com. The first one is in Minneapolis in April, and then the last one, I think, you wrap up in Roanoke, Virginia in August, and all points in between. I actually, I actually have more. You have I more? Start, yeah, I actually start in March with post camp. Come on now, Troy. You got to get, he does, he does shooting, post, oh, man, I did all the attack counter. Hey, listen, just go to BreakthroughBasketball.com. You can click on Don Kelbick. He's bio and I'll list all of his camps there and where he's going to be at. But no, Coach Don, been around the game. He studied the game. And what I like about you, Don, too, is that a lot of coaches, and I used to be this when I was younger, you know, you're setting your ways and you think, I know all the answers and you're not comfortable in your own skin and as you get older, you start to kind of maybe open up more and you see things. What's a better way of doing it? And it's about the players. And, and I see that in you, and I respect that, and I, and I appreciate the, the knowledge you put out there. I, I appreciate that. Anything I do to help, let me know.